welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. So much of what we've talked about and who we have talked with involves leadership, whether it's in the president's office, as a board member, as a higher ed scholar, or heading up a national education association, navigating the headwinds and occasional rough waters are part of the job at the intersection of college sports and higher education. My guest today studies higher education and athletic leadership. Dr. Jennifer Lee Hoffman is an associate professor in the College of Education at the University of Washington, where she heads up the Center for Leadership in Athletics. She recently authored a book called College Sports and Institutional Values in Competition, which has been published by Routledge. Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. I've read, I've looked at your book carefully. I've got it marked in a few places. And these, these four things kind of jumped out at me. So I'm hoping we can have a conversation about this. In one of your early chapters in the book, you talk about the tension that exists in the environment around an institution, the economic tension, the cultural tension, structural and regulatory. Can you explain those forces and then perhaps give us an example, for example, like the University of Washington? Yeah, absolutely. So your listeners will be well familiar with um, decisions that get announced around athletics all of the time. And the focus is often on a tension between the economic context and its institutional values. And in my class for several years, I've been using a framework that came originally from Suzanne Essler and Lori Nelson. And in their book, it's, a, it's an ASH monograph and it's titled, Who Calls the Shots? And they lay out this framework. Um, and I really like this framework because I help, I think it helps reveal a much more complicated story. And I find the frame to be really useful for understanding the complexity of decisions and the deep interconnections between any athletic department and its institution. And I think the four frames, the economic, the structural, the social, cultural, and the regulatory, will be really familiar to your listeners. But I think the structural context is um, a particularly good example of where a school like the University of Washington, who's a member of the PAC-12, um, is also um, has an, a Carnegie classification. And so all institutions uh, in the US, regardless of their athletic affiliation, are classified by the, the Carnegie classification system. And University of Washington shares um, a doctoral Carnegie classification with all of its peers in the Pac-12. And there's really strong evidence that this athletic conference affiliation actually provides the infrastructure for that academic and research affiliation that is really, really important. And so all of our peers in the Pac-12 are also those doctoral universities. And then as you look across the infrastructure of college athletics or the ecosystem of college athletics, you'll see that your um, division two uh, athletic programs and those with NAIA status, either division two or division three, those um, athletic conferences also provide a real similar Carnegie classification among those peers. And so when you look at these four frames and you look at the complexity of any one decision, I think that that infrastructure really emphasizes this peer status attainment system that is equally strong in academic prestige. And we see this in the ways that institutions within the PAC-12 will compete for the same students. We see this, how our member um, institutions in the PAC-12 are gonna compete for faculty and faculty expertise. 
And then we see that same competition for research and research resources. And then you can take that same evaluation of your own campus, look at your athletic conference, and then look in and see how your institution evaluates who its peers are. And oftentimes those peers that we see at the campus level in our academics are the same peers that we see in our athletic conferences. I think it's an interesting analogy, uh, particularly go back to almost 10 years ago when we had this major disruption, disruptive event called conference realignment. And the PAC-10 was in the middle of it. I mean, at one point there was rumor it would be the PAC-16. Yeah. I mean, a PAC, the uh, commissioner was looking at Texas and Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. They ended up adding Colorado and Utah. How do, how do Colorado and Utah fit into that traditional PAC-10 definition as to how you described it? Yeah, so again, you, you see examples of this and when institutions do try to change conferences, certainly around athletics, there's real resistance among conferences to let, peer, to let other, other institutions in because the ways that institutions view peers is really around the system of status attainment and so you don't want to let a peer in who you don't consider to be at the same level of status or prestige that you might consider yourself or that collection. And so the example of bringing in Texas was one of the institutions that was considered eventually with um, University of Utah and, and, and University of Colorado came in as member institutions. Certainly the, the, they also fit that doctoral level of Carnegie classification. And so it's expected that the as an athletic conference changes among the power five schools, they're gonna to look to other power five schools. As conference alignment changes um, at the FCS level, they're gonna to look to other FCS member institutions. But, but keeping in mind that, that Carnegie classification, there's really good evidence that an institution who does not share both that athletic prestige and that academic prestige, there's probably not a good chance that they're gonna be invited in as a member institution. And another way to look at this too are schools that are independents in Division I football. So mm -hmm. you take University of Connecticut, for example, they made a, a great move in back into the Big East that yeah. really supports their basketball programs really well, but has left their football program on the outside. Any sense of how different it is for basketball schools versus football schools? So the, the, the long history of football has created this, this system, and this is really where the evidence comes from, where athletic affiliation and academic affiliation, where those systems are really intertwined. It really does come from college football, and it comes from that long history of Saturday afternoons where you can expect the, those peers are going to line up, not just on the gridiron, but they are also then competing outside of the institution. Basketball as a phenomenon is a more recent, I mean, it seems like we've had it for a long time now, but it really is a much more recent phenomenon in terms of the long history of college sports. And that athletic affiliation, that, that real hardwiring of peer groups that's both the academic and the athletic in the same system, that really got built through the course of football over several generations. And so the ways in which basketball introduces itself now into that, you see that you can see that more strongly in those basketball only conferences, because there is a, a history there in those basketball only conferences that brought those peer groups together where they don't have that same interaction with football and uh, football and basketball don't have that same alliance. I'm even seeing uh, this uh, idea of who our peers are, who, who we like to be thinking ourselves as, happen in Division Three conferences here on the East Coast. In Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, New York, 
Massachusetts, there has been this tremendous musical chairs mm -hmm. of schools moving in and out of conferences, either because the game has changed in terms of their athletic support or they're aspiring to what another conference, uh, their reputation is. The Centennial Conference in Pennsylvania primarily is a good example. It had a longstanding reputation of being a very elite Division III conference like NESCAC in New England. And the Centennial has had some turnover in its, in its uh, conference and that type of thing. So again, they're looking for, for academic reputation. Who are we competing against for students and, and student athletes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, pretty much any of those four frames, you can apply, you can, you can look at the tensions and sort of how tensions align or how tensions are, are, are disparate or competing and, and move that through any decision at really any level of, of, of the athletics ecosystem. So these, this, this kind of interrogation of what's happening at my institution and looking at it through those four frames, you can look at it through an economic context. You can look at it through the regulatory context. And it really helps anyone at any number of institutional affiliations sort through what's that relationship between my athletic program and my institution. One other thing that I wanna mention, just because I went through it as an athletic director is that the difference between a public and a private school, particularly in division three is huge. There are so many private school only conferences in division three that won't accept a public school because the perception and how little the how much the difference is between tuition. Does that fall into what you're saying as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a part of it is the, those economic peers. You know, part of it is the um, sort of the structural alignment in terms of who's you know, local, those regional affiliations. But let's not forget the selectivity around a private institution. And although much, you know, many more institutions are subject to these enrollment fluctuations and you know, many more institutions are competing essentially for an incoming class, the ways that a, an athletic conference or a group of peer institutions, how they view their incoming class, how they view their selectivity, right. you know, that really, those again, those two systems are really interconnected. And so it's not surprising to hear that an all private school conference would wanna retain some of, of, of those elements or those characteristics that they feel elevate or separate them from other institutions. Right, right, definitely see it playing out in athletics. Another way we see uh, colleges compete for students are the uses, and we put that in quotes, for athletics. Talk a little bit more about that because it's a very strategic tool that institutions use. Yeah, absolutely. And so as we've been talking about, your listeners are gonna know well the competition and how intense it is for students. Um, and higher education, your listeners are gonna know that higher education has been in really a decades long decline of state and federal resources. And this has just made all schools, public and private, much more reliant on student enrollment and tuition. And that the typical narrative around an institution is that an athletics championship is the way that an institution uses its athletic program to drive um, notoriety, visibility, and advertising that is then going to result um, in boosting enrollment. And the research on the, the connection between a championship and enrollment is much more complicated. Instead, what we know is that we will see a small bump in enrollment, um, a bump over time will be uh, relatively modest. What we do end up seeing is that a national championship will in fact create a shift in students enrolling that otherwise would have enrolled um, 
in a, uh, among a peer. So say at University of Washington, if we were to win a national championship, typically in football or basketball, that's gonna draw some students to enroll in our institution that otherwise would have perhaps enrolled in another Big 10 school or another Pac-12 school. Um, but what I also wanna underscore is that um, what's becoming much more clear across the ecosystem isn't just what happens at our large um, you know, FBS institutions. Um, we're starting to see, we already know this from Varsity Blues and then more recently in the Atlantic article that came out last week, is that the admissions system and the youth sports system are actually the same system. Yes. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> it's true, it's true. Yeah. And so it's really the result of um, a change in admissions that happened in the 60s and 70s. And this emphasized a more um, well-rounded class and drawing from a national pool to develop that class. And then you fast forward now a couple of generations, and this has created a really strong incentive uh, for athletes of all sports um, to pursue athletic achievement, in but in particular among what the CIC or the Commission on Independent Colleges calls the greenfield sports. It's really created a tight connection between lacrosse, squash, field hockey, and those highly selective colleges. And so we're starting to see this, this rise to the visibility of a, a public consciousness. But again, it's happening throughout the, really the whole ecosystem. And the NAIA also provides another really strong example of this where they have an initiative called the ROA, which is Return on Athletics. And those institutions are increasingly um, more deliberate around integrating their athletics program and their admissions system to make sure that they are also um, meeting their enrollment goals. I think as we've all realized that we're looking at a cliff that's coming up with regards to enrollment in the next few years, there'll just be fewer and fewer high school graduates in the northeastern part of the United States, in the mid-Atlantic, even in the upper Midwest, that schools in the south and the southwest and the west coast will see the demographic shifting but growing. And athletics will play an important role in sustaining, hopefully, some of those enrollments. But one of the concerns I have is that in order to compete for those athletes, you're going to have to keep doing more, whether it's hiring more coaches or building nicer facilities. Even at the Division Three level, I just saw the other day that Colby in Maine opened a $200 million athletic recreational facility. So it, the arms race appears to be alive and well in the small privates like it is at schools like Washington. Yeah, and we see, and again, this is where I always go back and say what we see in our athletic programs is often the same dilemmas we see on campus. And again, taking a really long view of higher education, we know that higher education has always been highly um, enrollment dependent. And there was a period um, post-World War II where there was a lot more government subsidy to, uh, that brought in a lot of resources into universities. But with those declining state and federal resources, institutions are, again, much more highly dependent on student enrollment. And so they're much more um, drawn toward the kind of incentives and amenities that would bring students just to campus, let alone that would bring an athlete or a recruit to want to select their athletic program. Kind of like the old lazy river kind of the thing. The lazy river. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I talk about the lazy river in the book and also increasingly the gaming arenas and the infrastructure for 
um, you know, not only sophisticated, um, we're seeing more institutions, you know, raising the, the notoriety of esports and, and developing a more institution supported esports team, but there's still a real groundswell, um, a, a community of, 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 of students that want to participate in pretty sophisticated level gaming at the recreational level as well. And they want that autonomy. And so access to the resources that they're going to need on campus is important to them. Absolutely. It's hard to play esports without the facilities you need, the tech you need, you know? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I thought, this was an interesting analogy that you made in your book. And you talk about how many students come to college with lots of volunteerism on their applications, right? That's used as a very positive thing. You know, you're involved in your community. In fact, that's what we want out of our college experiences. We want them to understand how to become a good civic partner in their community. But also you've contrasted that with athlete activism and the ways that colleges try to channel or discourage athletes who may want to be active in various social and uh, justice-oriented movements. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I've really been keeping a close eye like everyone has on, on what's happening, not just in this more recent wave of activism, but dating back over the last 10 years. And again, if you take a, a longer look, you'll see that athletes have been pretty involved in activism on campus for, for decades. And when you look at both students and student athletes, you start to really see that in higher education, we reward and promote one kind of activism, but not others. And so in the book, I talk about the ways in which service learning, volunteerism, electoral activity, those are the kinds of things that we promote as institutions. We sometimes provide credit for those. We provide the leadership development and training. And we really hold those up as the ways in which institutions can meet their civic mission of really developing um, young people for those leadership responsibilities that they are gonna need after they leave our universities. But then on the contrast, um, for students and for, for student athletes, we are highly resistant to the ways in which they engage in protest, demonstrations, sit-ins. And so we view those kinds of activities not as leadership, but we, we, we view those activities as things that we should um, be resistant against. And instead, if we could reframe our thinking about the ways in which students with all of this energy around a topic that they feel extremely strongly about and have really deep experience with, if we could see that activity as something that's worthy of infusing our skills around leadership development, we could work hand in hand with students to help give them the leadership skills that they are gonna need to uh, corral all of that energy that leads to that protest and really be deeply engaged then in the skills in which they're gonna need to work with the reconciliation, work with the um, uh, remediation of, of what those challenges were and be part of the solution that they are seeking. And a lot of this work comes from a New Directions reader by um, Georgiana Martin, Chris Linder, and, and Bethany Williams. And it's called Learning Leadership Through Activism. And it's really influenced how I think about the ways in which we should be helping um, all students and student athletes included in thinking about the activism that they're interested in as leadership development and then promoting that as well for those um, experiences that they're going to have after university life. I think that concept is a fantastic concept to think more deeply about when it comes to athletes, because one of the mantras of athletic departments is we're training our athletes to become leaders. We talk about leadership all the time. And yet when they cross over into that activism area, 
where they cross over into Black Lives Matter. They cross over to violence in the communities or, or, or any reconciliation, as you mentioned. That's when we get afraid and we get worried that they're then spending too much time on it or their energy is going in a different direction and it's not going towards the team. Or you might offend some of the donors. You know, These are the kinds of things that go through a coach's mind. And so they're, they want to tamp down some of that to some degree. I thought it was absolutely fascinating and never occurred to me that football coaches this year had to be told that they needed to, the team needed a day off to go to vote. It never occurred to me that they had, had never not had that opportunity to go on a Tuesday to go vote. But if you think about it, when do we even take athletes to register if they yeah. come from out of state? So yeah. I think this is a, a topic that is really worth exploring and how much of a voice do we allow athletes to have? Yeah, and, and again, thinking about electoral activity and putting it through the frame of our athletic programs, First, I think it's it's really terrific that um, that we're we have this emphasis on electoral activity and that we should have had it for decades. And, and I'm really glad to see that we are picking that up. I was also not surprised to see that as sort of a, a first step because electoral activity really does fall into the kinds of things that we promote as institutions. And so I thought it was a, a nice segue, a nice first step in thinking about the ways in which we want all our students to be engaged in the electoral process. And it's really good to see athletic programs taking that step and creating that opportunity for athletes to be engaged. We had a um, kind of a cool example here in Seattle where um, athletes uh, were wearing t-shirts that said vote and had a big QR code on the shirt. And so in a socially distanced way, they can promote voting because um, people can scan with their phone you know, and learn more about voting. And again, that's athletic department sanctioned, it's athletic department promoted, and I'm really, really happy to see it. I'm also not surprised to see that being picked up because it is along that menu of items that institutions otherwise you know, sort of see as favorable. And so I think, again, we, as much as we, we see that, we now need to take that next step and yeah. think about the issues that our athletes are really interested in, either within their sport or their own experience, and then how do we make it a safe um, opportunity for them to drive activism in the ways that they see is meaningful for them? First, I have to say, only in Seattle would you see QR codes on t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the barcode on a t-shirt, perhaps in a, in a less socially distant environment where you can get a little closer to one another, but yeah. Uh, but secondly, it does really bring up a lot of issues. Uh, for example, uh, the University of Iowa has been under the microscope for one of their uh, strength staff members you know, making racist comments to, allegedly making racist comments to the uh, students while they were working out and, and he ended up leaving, but then another group of athletes wanted to, wants to sue the university for $20 million for their racist infrastructure. So coaches are definitely afraid of, of being labeled in that way, but they also know that they're afraid of that discussion yeah. That needs to happen that has to go further than just, okay, we had the talk, now let's get back to practice. Yeah. Any yeah. suggestions for leaders on that? Well, this is really difficult, but I, I think we are really in a moment where we have told a generation, you know, from, a, from the time of our athletes now, you know, you think back 15, 20, even 25 years predating um, their birth, we have been telling a generation, if you see something that's not right, you need to speak up. And we have taught them to speak up from a really young age. 
And now when they speak up, we have to listen. And it's really, really challenging. And I'm not suggesting that anyone has all of the answers when an athlete comes to you with either an allegation of something that's happened or they've seen something happen to a teammate or a peer. But we really have to sharpen our ability, I think, as leaders to listen. And then instead of just trying, and as athletics, we're used to, you know, handling it all in-house, you know, as coaches, as administrators, we're used to like, we make a decision, we know what to do, we handle it, but really reaching to our campus for the resources that are made available to us. So first we have to listen and really listen deeply, even when we don't want to hear what they're saying. <laughs> and then we have to know who our, our campus resources are, and we have to build that trust between our athletic program and our campus for when there are allegations that are serious and really warrant a more um, thorough and, and sophisticated evaluation really by people that have professional training in this. I, I think we have to get better at both listening and then also knowing where our supports are so that we can really serve the best interest of athletes. And, and I know we can have a whole nother discussion on the, the infrastructure that athletics is building to manage so many of those issues in-house and the inherent mm -hmm. ethical um, is situations where it puts the staff member, where it puts the student. But I do want to touch on one of the last things you said, because I think this is really what I want our listeners to think about is in your final chapter, you wrote, quote, meaningful change will not come until we first understand the ways in which athletics are deeply embedded in higher education, unquote. You and I are of one mind when it comes to that statement. We, we really believe that higher education needs to embrace athletics and not separate it and put it off to the side. It's over on West Campus, it's in a silo. It's, it's not anywhere near what we talk about Be, because uh, I certainly feel, and I think you do too, that's been one of our problems is that we have left it off to fend for itself, mm -hmm. but it represents higher education. So where do we go from here? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different things we could talk about, but one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because as a scholar of higher education, I see this discourse over college athletics far too often essentialized into this athletic system that is run amok, that is out of control, this runaway train. Um, and I will, you know, I, I am the first to stand up and, and acknowledge that there have been really egregious examples of a mistreatment of athletes or crimes that get committed at all levels of the system. This is, these are not just the challenges of our most visible institutions and their athletic programs. Um, but at the same time, we also know that college sports has been highly resistant to change. And so this is due in large part to the fact that higher education itself is highly resistant to change. And so we're not gonna see really fundamental changes in our ecosystem of college sports until we start to see some of those same changes in higher education itself. And so I would encourage your listeners to really take stock of their own campus and look carefully at the institution's values um, and really where the complexity is in leading the institution is in a way that is consistent with the institutional values. Because the role of leadership is really to try to reconcile what are our values and then match our, our actions to that but then also be upfront in the ways in which that's really, really challenging. And then the other suggestion that I would um, suggest, the other suggestion I have for your listeners is to think about a values-based decision-making model. And your, your listeners are gonna be familiar with the term data-informed decision-making. 
And so it's not just about making um, a direct data informed decision and then announcing how it connects to your institution's mission. It's starting with a values based framework and making a values informed decision and then being able to articulate how that decision um, connects to evidence that connects to your institutional mission. I don't think going forward, we're gonna be able to say, well, we've made this decision consistent with our institutional mission. I think we have to start from a framework that works from data and, and being data informed, but also works from a framework that's values driven and then being able to articulate the evidence about how this connects to our values and the challenges that we're dealing with in trying to connect to our values. I can relate to that so much in the master's class that I teach at Penn on with students who are higher ed students who are studying athletics, their major assignment is to take an athletics program, read the, the institution's mission statement, read the athletics mission statement, and then go through literally and grab the data and say, does, does this line up? And that's what their final paper is. Does what they're doing in athletics line up with what they say they want for their students and for their athletes? And, it's always a very interesting, enlightening thing, and particularly because sometimes you see mission statements that are way out of date and we're <laughs> not in alignment with anything. But it does make you think, what are we saying? What are we saying how we want to be? And what are we really in real life? Um, William and Mary has been going through a lot of anxiety with dropping sports as some other schools have been. And they've really been called on what are your values here? How, how do you value us in this system when you say, I'm sorry, but we don't, we have more money for football and basketball, but we don't have money for tennis or gymnastics or, or swimming and diving or a host of other sports that have been dropped. It's really frustrating because it feels very much like mixed messaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I do a similar exercise in my class and we ask students to, in our graduate class, and I ask students to evaluate the campus mission and the athletic department mission. And then also put it through those four frames. And you know, where are we seeing either stated upfront um, in a direct statement in a mission statement, or what are the symbolic meanings or what are the indirect messages that can be put through those various frames as well? Yeah. And it, you're right, it's absolutely fascinating to see what's stated publicly. Um, and then what also students know from an experience of being at a particular university and, and how does the mission statement sort of resonate with their experience or how does it feel disparate or, or not even connected in any particular way exactly exactly well jen hoffman thank you so much for joining me today this has been a great conversation i'm hopeful it'll get our listeners to think more about what the role is of athletics on their campus and how more involved senior leaders need to be in athletics thanks well thanks for having me karen it's been super fun absolutely